I heard an interesting story the other day that outside of Louisville, Kentucky, on Pope Lake Creek, years ago there was a, a circus train accident in which the goat man managed to escape. And as the legend has it, he lives under the train trussles and, well, he'll capture your feet and that oncoming train will get you. Next time I'm in Louisville, I wouldn't mind checking into that goat monster story. The Pope Lick Creek Monster. Maybe see what we can find. See if there's any, any truth to that story. I wonder if he still lives there. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And and everyone plus... has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history. A war. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Hey, welcome back to the show, guys. We're so happy to have you all with us today. So good luck on your commute. Don't ram anyone. That would be rude and terrible. Keep your cool, deep breaths. And if you like us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, that is really, really helpful. Five-star reviews are especially helpful, just a hint. I mean, I'm not telling you how to vote here, guys, but wouldn't hurt. Just saying. Just saying. And also, we want to mention our other podcast. Audio Dime Museum. So, this is something a little different from what this show is. Uh, a little? Uh, Yeah. A little. A little. You're sticking to that story? Sure. Okay. Well, that's just a story. It's quite different from this podcast, but it's in the same vein. It's an experimental storytelling podcast where we take historical themes and stories and spin them into new audio drama format. We do have the first season up. It's there waiting for you. And we'll have the second season up very shortly. We're working on it now. It's all planned out. And we can't wait for you to join us on that crazy ride. So go and subscribe now, and it'll be popping up in your feed very soon. That sounds like such a euphemism. And we do have a bunch of local urban legends that people have been submitting, and we just absolutely love these. And they're going to be our next few episodes. And so if you have some more, then just write us on Twitter, send us an email, call us at the Just a Story hotline. And for those of you who don't have it in your contacts, which why not, the number is 512-222-3375. And so back to the story at hand. Okay, so the story this week is a little bit of a doozy. It's a weird one. We like the weird ones. But it's also kind of a local urban legend in Kentucky. Oh, God. Only good things come from Kentucky. Like bourbon and horse races and racism. I mean, what? My morning jacket. Okay, they're from Kentucky. Jim James seems like baby Jesus. I think he is baby Jesus. I think he is too. With a beard. Well, he's grown up baby Jesus, but not Jesus himself. If you haven't listened to my morning jacket, (laughs) we have seen three times. Four? (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, a lot. Too much. Uh, You should pause, go listen to them, and then come back and join us. So this week's story was the Pope Lick Monster. Which is maybe the greatest name of any monster in the history of monsters. And he's not licking any popes, unfortunately. I'm so sad about that. I was so excited originally. But the Pope Lick Monster is a half-man, half-goat freak. And he's escaped from the circus. Dun-dun-dun. Where he was held captive in their freak show. Oh my goodness, like chained up and against his will, and he was ragey and mean, full of malice and goat. Black Philip. (laughs) So the circus train was coming through near Louisville, near the Pope Lick Trestle. Okay, does the trestle lick popes? 
No. Okay. It's ever Popelick Creek. Okay, you're not ex- establishing any kind of reason for the Pope Lick name. You're just passing the buck. Kentucky. Okay, fine. Supposedly, the circus train crashed a long time ago, and the goat man escaped. Dun, dun, dun. And filled with malice. And rage be- and goat. Yes. He began to live under the trestle. Like the troll and the three billy goats? Kind of, yeah. Okay. And so the legend is, when you run across the trestle, the goat man will reach up and grab your legs and hold you down until the train comes by. And he gets his revenge on people. On just humans in general? Yeah. Because they put him in the freak show? Yes. So he holds you down, and the train kills you? Yes. Well, that's passive aggressive. Well, sometimes he'll, like, jump on your car, or he'll come at you with an axe. Okay, that's less passive aggressive. A blood-stained axe. Oh, my. Okay, so what's he look like? Half man, half goat. Okay. There actually are some great descriptions on the internet, but unlike some cryptids out there, there is no, like, fake photography of it. Oh, really? Not that I found. If you oh, have it, send it to me. I've seen it. Really? The Georgia goat men, there's a bunch. This is a different goat man. There are lots of goat men. There's one in Maryland. Goats are creepy, dude. Like, I really do think goats are kind of scary. Well, uh, there's a reason they've been associated with Satan for so long. Yeah. And maybe... Actually, lots of reasons we're not going Yeah, that. okay, fine. Let's get back to the goat man. And, of course, there's one in... Texas! Of course! Everything's in Texas. But it's a lot bigger, too. Oh, are you serious? No. Oh? I was buying it. So this train trestle, where supposedly the goat man lives and kills people, has become a really popular spot for legend tripping. Legend trip. We so need to do that. Legend tripping is like where people will go to these spots that are supposedly haunted or where boogeymen dwell or that are the subject of urban legend in one way or another and go try to experience whatever delights the aforementioned place is known to hold right and so you can go to different paranormal and spots where spaces like cryptids and legends are and try to find them and it's just kind of a scare it's a bravery test so very much something that would be the subject of an urban legend oh definitely (laughs) lots of people do this so these people go trekking out to kentucky get hopped up on bourbon and go looking to catch themselves a critter yes Okay, and has anyone ever caught themselves a critter? Well, you could say that the goat man has claimed a few lives. Are you serious? Yes. No! On April 23rd, 2016... No, stop it! Raquel Bain and her boyfriend from Ohio had come into town to do some paranormal tours. Uh Uh-huh. They were going to Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, that would scare the shit out of me. Yeah. And they decided before they go on the tour... They go searching for the Pope-Lick monster. As you do. As they were on the train tracks, they heard a train coming. As you do. The boyfriend jumped off and held onto the train tracks above the creek. And unfortunately, Raquel was hit by the train. Oh my god, that's so fried green tomatoes. And was thrown off the bridge and died. Oh my god, this really happened, you swear to god. And it is not the only death associated. Shut up! Why are people looking for this thing? Like... This makes no sense to me. It's not a ghost. It's like supposedly like a creature. How long could a creature live? Well, I don't know. It's some weird creature hybrid thing. Okay. So they re- they go out there, they're looking for the goat man, and then she actually does get hit by a train. Yes. This year. Oh, yeah. A few months ago. Oh, my God. So this story has so many things we could talk about. But what we're really interested in is that it's this creature this outsider that escaped from the circus that is out seeking revenge that we don't know what it's doing why it's there well i think first of all we need to maybe take a look at why people would think there might be an evil monster traveling with the circus yeah definitely there are lots of things traveling with the circus yeah um i mean they've got lions and tigers and bears oh my (laughs) And they've got the very interesting cast of characters uh, that are attached to the freak show. And oh, yes, definitely. Then they've got people, transient migrant workers who are doing the physical labor. Yeah, people that could be from anywhere. Yeah, no one knows their history. And so they come through town for just a brief time, and they set up just outside of town, and they have their own community, and they're not involved in the bigger community at all, and then they scare the shit out of people, right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes. You know, the circus has a really interesting history. 
Right. Because it's something that we bring families to. We go to have fun. It's entertainment. It's lighthearted on the surface. But it's got a kind of dark underbelly. And people have always been a little creeped out by it. Yeah. These people are coming out of nowhere to bring this fantastical, odd, weird show to your home. Which may be in the middle of the country. A little town of 500 people. Where you never see anyone or anything new. So the circus really started a long time ago. How long ago? Well, it depends on what you consider the beginning of the circus. I consider it the first time that we get the word and there's like animals and entertainment. So when's that? So the word is Latin, Mm -hmm. meaning circle. Oh. And it's the Circus Maximus. Oh my God, like in the Russell Crowe movie. Kind of. (laughs) But so it it was a giant Roman auditorium where they did chariot races. Like in Gladiator? No, like in Ben-Hur. Oh, fine. Okay. But they also did, did have gladiator matches. Okay. Animal hunts. In the arena? Yeah, like in gladiator. Oh, yeah, okay. They would have plays, performers, athletics, all sorts of things to entertain the masses. So movie theaters, basically. Yeah. And these people that performed, especially the gladiators, were outsiders. While you could volunteer to be a gladiator, it was often slaves that did it. Like people who had been taken prisoner and were like in gladiator? Like in gladiator. Like in gladiator. How many okay. times can we say gladiator? 7,000. That's the goal. Um, okay, so the performers are marked as outsiders and they're... In, in life and death. What do you mean? Even after they die, they are separated from others. Meaning they're buried in different areas? Yes. Or, okay, so we're not having it, even after their noble service. But the modern day circus, which is kind of a separate thing, started in England with Philip Astley. And he was a cavalryman. And after he left the service, he started a horse riding school and began doing horse riding tricks. And he built an arena, a circular arena, called the Circle, or Circus. Oh. Uh, but he was not the first person that had that ringed circus. And well, of course the Romans, but equestrians had been using that for a while because they'd go in circles. And they'd use that centrifugal force. To stay on the horses? Because yes. they're smart. And as he became more and more popular doing his horse tricks, he stopped teaching any kind of horse riding and began putting on more of a show. And what did he bring in? So he brought in acrobats and rope dancers and jugglers and clowns, all to perform between the equestrian acts. And that went over like gangbusters. And bada bing, bada boom, you got a circus? Kind of. It really developed from there. That was in about 1770 and just progressed and became more and more popular. But it really changed into at least what I think of as a circus in the 19th century in the United States. Because the United States is this massive country. Right. So you've got a lot of land area. You've got lots of little towns. You've got to get to the little towns. And that's when people started traveling? Exactly. Okay. So in 1825, Joshua Pretty Brown started using this big canvas tent to hold his circus in. So like what you see now when you go to the circus. Assuming you're not going to see the circus in like an auditorium or whatever. Right. At the same time, old Hakaliah Bailey... Sound familiar? Yeah. Well, not Hakaliah. That sounds terrible. But Bailey, yeah. (laughs) Like Barnum and Bailey. Right. He was a farmer, and he purchased a young African elephant and traveled around with it, charging people to see it. And he made a killing. Did he kill the elephant? No, not this time. They always kill the elephant. I mean, it eventually died, but... It lived a long, happy life. Sure. There's just this once. We can do a whole episode on circus elephants. (laughs) So later on, our good old friend, P.T. Barnum... Oh my gosh, the master. You hear all about him in our Audio Die Museum, just a story episode. Right, P.T. Barnum, a sucker born every minute, hucksterism, etc., etc., greatest show on earth, things of that nature. Yeah, in 1871, he started P.T. Barnum's Museum, Menagerie, and Circus. And so the museum was just full of animal and human oddities. That's what became the freak show. Right. Next year, they added the circus train and then started adding rings and they had two rings and then you had the three ring circus. Okay. Well, then eventually it just becomes like essentially what you see in Dumbo minus the racism. Well, with the racism at first, but then later without it. Okay, there's plenty of racism. Don't worry. Okay, good. So we've got Dumbo happening at this point. We've arrived. This is the circus of first birthday parties and cutesy-themed school events. Yeah, and, you know, racism, animal cruelty, etc. Right, but let's just whitewash all that. Sure. (laughs) 
But then it, it does, of course, progress from there. Trapeze artists become bigger. The equestrian part of it really drops down. Although a lot of times, if you go see Ringling Brothers, they still have horse acts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not the main reason people were going like it originally was. Right. But this establishes this group of outsiders, this group of people that are traveling through the country, going to these small towns through the rural area. We don't know who they are. We don't know who these freaks are, who these carnies are. Gypsies, tramps, and thieves. Exactly. So if I said to you, I met the nicest fellow today, he's a carny, what would you think? Really? Why really? Just that idea of a carny. It just seems like someone that's just an outsider, someone that's just trying to steal a buck from you in one of those games or some transient so, like, untrustworthy, kind of skeevy, like, just not your kind of people. Yeah, I think that's the general idea of it. Now, if I actually, in reality, told you I met the nicest carny today, you would probably say... Really? That's cool! cool. <laughs> but, let's go with that idea. There are actually a few stories of children disappearing from carnivals and circuses. Really? Yes. So, I mean, there's that idea of running away to the circus... But I guess there's also the idea of the circus running away with you. Right. And I think that's probably a good place to start. There are stories, like I came across some message boards online when I was doing research. And there were people like, I can't find any information about my great aunt. She was kidnapped by the circus in like 1879 from Glasgow. And that woman's name on that post was Rebecca Bustard. And then there's a story of Annie Jones. She was a famous bearded lady. She was. She had a glorious, glorious beard. But she was bearded even when she was a young girl. And P.T. Barnum, being the master of branding and public relations that he was, branded her the monkey girl. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So there was a phrenologist who was also working in the American Museum. And the phrenologist abducted young Annie and had plans to sell her away. This was in the United States? Yes. Holy cow. He decided to, or he tried to abscond with her. But he was found out, and Annie Jones's mother went to a judge, and the judge decided to do a little splitting of the baby, I guess. A little Solomon. Oh, yeah, a little Solomon. But the mom comes in, and the phrenologist comes in, and he puts the whole girl down, and she runs to the mom, and he's like, all right, you're legit. Take your kid. Take your <laughs> monkey girl and go. So that's the story of how Annie Jones was almost kidnapped. And then there's also a story of the Muse brothers, who were a pair of African-American albinos living in Roanoke, Virginia. Supposedly, this family legend, the family story, is that the boys were kidnapped by the circus. Really? They, you, know, you know there's a lot of recent articles and stuff about the mistreatment of albinos in Africa, and that they think they're like magical and have all sorts of yeah. problems. So actually, it probably worked out better for them than the albinos in Africa whose body parts are sold to do magic. Yeah. Yeah. So this was not that bad by comparison, but still not kosher, I would say. They were exhibited as Eco and Ico, the sheep-headed men. And they were taught to play banjo and mandolin, and their names were not Eco and Ico. Their mother supposedly searched for them for like 30 or 40 years, and like when she finally found them, they went back to the circus. Really? Yeah. This was kind of like the only life they knew. Yes. And, that sad. But I mean, I think that it was probably a pretty good life, like a pretty sweet gig, you know? I, I, I don't they know made, about that. Uh, no, they made really good money. I know, actually, like looking into all of the different freaks, like some of them made a killing. Yeah, and had their celebrity, and they had people who didn't, who were used to them being there every day, and they were kind of celebrated, or I don't know. I don't just, like, it didn't sound half bad. Not to say people were not exploited, but in the case oh, of... Oh, yes, people were exploited. But in the case of some of the headliners, like, they really did kind of find their tribe, for lack of a better word. Sorry, that's probably not a good thing to say. But, you know, they were pretty okay. But just a fun fact about the Muse brothers, or Eco and Ico, one of them, Willie, lived out his days and died in 2001 at the age of 108 years old really 
Really? So I guess his life maybe wasn't so bad. I hate to say that. I don't know the details. I'm sure there were some terrible spots. The sheep-headed people is kind of not something I would want to be called, but I can think of worse things like the Popelik monster. And so those are kind of the stories of people being kidnapped and being put into service of the circus. There are more. There are lots more. We could find a billion. Those were my favorites. But there's another kidnapping story that kind of represents the origins of ransom and kidnapping and missing posters and kind of the way Americans do missing children. Okay, so who was this? Okay, it was a little boy named Charlie Ross. And he was the son of a man in Philadelphia named Christian Ross, who was thought to be wealthy, but was actually kind of in a lot of debt. But he had a big house. So one day, Charlie and his brother were playing outside, and two men rolled up in a carriage and told him... Wait, were they in a white van? No, they were in a carriage. And they said to Charlie and his brother, who were four and six, come get in our carriage and take a ride with us. We'll give you some candy if you do. Wait, is this where that comes from? Where what comes from? The candy thing. Don't take candy from strangers. Yes. Yes. It was actually on some of his missing posters. No. Yes. So this is the origin. This is in 1874. So it's been around a while. It's got deep roots. It was also one of the first ransom letters, possibly the first ransom letter sent in the United States. And the kidnappers sent communique to Christian, who is the father, asking him for $20,000. And he was not able to pay. Because That's was, a lot of money. I know. Then. It's a ton of money. There were songs and ads and circulars. Like there was a song written, written called Bring Back Our Darling. And like the equivalent of a massive like viral campaign. And so 18- he became kind of a folk hero? Or folk led like a folk story. Cautionary tale? Yeah. Maybe. Like yeah. Like urban legend. Like yeah, he kind of became his own little legend. You know who helped in this this escalation of panic around Charlie Ross? Oh, who's that? P. T. Barnum. Of course. Of course he did. He had his hands in everything. P.T. Barnum actually distributed missing posters with his picture on them. Like a drawn picture too, you know, because it's eighteen seventy four. They're the most elegant missing posters you've ever seen in your life. Like, they have, like, filigree and stuff. You should look them up. You should definitely look them up. Were they, like, on glass milk bottles? (laughs) No, they were on circus trains. Oh, right. Right. So the circus was going all over America. It was crisscrossing the country, and it drew large audiences. So he'd put the posters up at his events, and he'd also pass out leaflets. So the circus kind of got associated with this kidnapping. This, I mean, the circus was like an early social media, spreading it as quickly as you could then. <laughs> right. But people are also going to the circus and seeing like, hey, this kid's not around anymore. Like oh, plastered yeah. everywhere. You can see how that would kind of get and stick in the psyche. But then it became even more associated with the circus, the Charlie Ross kidnapping, because Christian Ross Later in his life, after he spent years and years and all of his money and money he didn't have and tons of effort looking for this child who's never recovered, he wrote a book in which he told the story of a man who'd come forward claiming to be Charlie Ross. Was it him? Well, the dad said he was full of shit. Okay. Like, basically, in his very eloquent Victorian prose, he says, And that man was as full of shit as the day is long. But that's not what he said. That's a direct quote. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, But he claimed, the man who came forward, claimed that he had been kidnapped by a Cuban circus and was being trained to be a clown. Not a Cuban circus. Not a Cuban circus. Not clowns. Not clowns. No, it's all true. He was kidnapped and taken away to clown college in Cuba and given a cigar. An exploding cigar? Probably. And of course, none of that's true. Probably. Probably. Who knows? Who knows? But again, we have the idea of this adorable little boy that everyone knows, who's kind of become America's sweetheart, America's child, the John Bonet of his day, being kidnapped by circus people. Hmm. I mean, this is interesting that there's so many stories of being taken away by the circus. Right. By these mysterious outsider circus people coming in and taking children but this is all 100 years ago this isn't like really still happening oh contraire mon frere oh no please tell me now. so apparently there's a bit of an epidemic in nepal of children being trafficked into indian circuses 
people will come and tell the children these stories about their beautiful new clothes that they'll receive and how glamorous and exciting their life will be, that they'll have the chance for an education, a regular wage. And they tell these stories to kids who are sometimes as young as five years old. And they're sold for about $13. Unfortunately, according to Al Jazeera, once in the circuses, these children often live in squalor and are never allowed to leave the circus compound. They are routinely beaten in order to teach them difficult and dangerous tricks, and sexual abuse is commonplace. In effect, these children have been totally at the mercy of the circus management who treat them as they please. So this went on kind of unchecked until about 2002 when the Esther Benjamins Memorial Foundation got involved. And they rescued about 300 Nepalese children. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and some of them are returned to families, and some of them who they perceive as being at risk for being trafficked again are put into a refuge. And about 122 children who are currently in the refuge were brought in from Indian circuses. And people estimate that there are about 100 circuses operating, and about 12 of them are registered with the Indian Circus Federation. So there's like an extreme lack of regulation in the industry. And people think that as many as 1,000 to 2,000 children are currently working in Indian circuses under these sorts of circumstances. Wow, I can't believe this is still happening. I cannot either. But in April of 2011, there was the Juvenile Justice Act that was put into place, and it made it illegal for anyone under the age of 18 to work or train with the circus. I wonder how effective that is. I don't know, because it seems like the regulation's kind of all willy-nilly. It is at least positive progress, I guess. Yay. It at gets, least they're trying. It gets better. Somebody's on. Somebody's paying attention. So I mean, this is still happening. People are still being abducted and brought into the circus. Yes. And there's also always those bedtime stories, those campfire stories, the legends of people being taken away by carnies. And of course... You can be taken away to be brought into the circus and become a Cuban clown. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, Ah, Fidel, is that you? (laughs) But of course, there's also these stories of people being taken away and... Done away with. Done away with. Never come back. So two of my favorite evil carny stories that I came across were the stories of William Henry Redmond and Charles E. Pierce. Let's start with Redmond. He was a Ferris wheel operator and a truck driver with a carnival. Oh, that's two red flags. That's a honest-to-God carny. And he has been linked to, notice the wording here, the death of Jane Marie Althoff, who was an eight-year-old. And she was found assaulted and strangled in a carnival truck on the fairgrounds. So they don't know if he did it. The case went cold for about 30 years. And then a detective became fascinated with it when he was looking through cold case files and kind of put the M.O. into VICAP and stumbled upon this man, Redmond. Supposedly, according to the detectives who interviewed him, he was in Nebraska at the time, he confessed. Really? But he was dying of cancer and was too sick to stand trial. So he was never formally charged with her murder. Another death that's been kind of whisper-linked to him is Beverly Potts, and she was a 10-year-old who disappeared from a carnival. She went to a carnival with her friend and never came home, and he was working the carnival. Hmm, that is suspicious. So there are about four other deaths that he is suspected of. And then we have Charles E. Pierce, that piece of work. He was a carnival barker. Okay, Yeah, so he had some more clout. He was found guilty of three murders. And at the end of his life, he was interviewed about some other crimes. And like the the detective who was interviewing said he became belligerent and threw his oxygen mask at him, which I think is really awfully hilarious. Like, I don't want to think it's funny, but the the image of it in my mind. Screw you. Take that. Take this plastic mask. He's linked to the disappearance of Billy DeSalza. Now, that is not a crime that he was charged with. But Billy DeSalza was a young boy, and he disappeared from Chicago in 1972. And he had been to a carnival, was the last time anyone heard or saw 
any hint of Billy DeSalza. Hmm, suspicious. It's very suspicious. So, as much as I don't want to say that the carnival and the fair and the circus are not safe places to send your children, I kind of think they're not safe places to send your children. That is our idea. And we get a lot of ideas about safety and crime from these extreme cases, these outliers. Uh Uh-huh. You don't believe me? I'm just saying, like, these kids went to carnivals and never came home. Yeah, and that is terrible and disturbing, but you have to think that these people will just set up from the get-go and they come into town. They're the outsiders. Who are these people? These are the out-group. Right. As you would talk about in sociological terms. Yeah. And we define these boundaries of our in-group, the people we associate with. So if you're in a small town, that might be just the town itself your church you go to, something like that, and the out-group, which is everybody else. And these boundaries exclude everyone else. So anyone else that comes into our sphere is automatically an outsider. Right, this is very Twilight Zone, Maple Street. Monsters of Maple Street or whatever. Why is that? Well, like, they decide spontaneously that people are the out-group. Right, people just show up on the street after they have a maybe alien invasion and they like start killing people off and there's a do they kill them there are bricks thrown it's implied it's 50s tv implied or 60s they're an automatic out group yeah they are and you know i think it's interesting the idea of like this in group out group has been studied to death but also the ideas of of trust um, are really important in our development and so you have Eric Erickson, who's a very important researcher in human development. One of his stages of development is this trust versus mistrust. And through that, to get through that stage, to be someone that can trust other people, we have to develop a sense of self-identity and belonging. Okay, so that's why we go through like rites of passage or learn traditions, pick up and try to look like others, get involved in ceremonies, that kind of stuff. Right. We're coding ourselves. Right, we are coding ourselves, but to be able to get there even, we have to just develop that very early on, and that's through learning from our family group. Okay, so that's sort of like a secure attachment almost? Secure versus insecure attachment? Okay, and that's like where you learn to trust that your parents will come back when they leave you at daycare, basically. Exactly. Okay. And so another famous uh, researcher, Maslow. Ah, I thought you were going to say Freud. No, I'm sorry. Maslow of... Of Maslow's hierarchy. Right. And he talked about how important belonging is and that it's necessary for our human need. And so it's just, it's a really big factor of human development and also a factor in our motivation. Okay. So we have to find a group of people that we can identify with and then we have to be accepted by that group in order to kind of progress through that stage, correct? Right. And so Marina Warner wrote a great book about boogeymen. And then it talks about our kind of labeling the in-group, creating our home safe place environment. And she said, the drive to define and delimit home, to name and circumscribe the abode and the milieu to which one belongs and where one feels safe leads to naming and defining things and people out there beyond the fence on the other side of the wire. Okay, so in order to make the sort of fortification and identification of home relevant, we need something to protect ourselves against? Exactly. So we kind of, you know, you can extrapolate this a little bit. Home as being your safe place, your in-group, your your community. And there's always going to be people outside of that community, and we're automatically going to mistrust them. For example, when I see someone who has an Alabama license plate i'm gonna assume like alabama like the school i'm gonna assume that they're horrible yeah it's just because you went to lsu okay but that's what i'm saying is i've identified with that i've made it my home group i've coded myself i've found acceptance among peers i identify that way i learned the dances i did the chants i wore the face paint whatever i did all those things so by doing that i've made unnecessary enemies so i'm going to make assumptions about people who label themselves as not being part of my tribe yeah no definitely and so you know we have sorry any alabama listeners we have we still love you you're the smart ones roll tide (coughs) thanks did you really just go into a spontaneous coughing fit when i said roll tide 
And so these outsiders are automatically going to be mistrusted. But sometimes, like things we've talked about before, those ideas are well-founded. Like with Alabama. Yes. Because sometimes people put themselves in that group by choosing not to associate with those norms and choosing to just kind of be in that outsider place. And that could be for psychological reasons. They're unable to. It could be for personal reasons. Of course, it could be forced upon them as well. But let's talk about the people that choose that way first. So the people who, like, willingly run away with the circus. Exactly. We've talked about a bunch of people so far. Uh, There's one family that's really interesting. And these are the Dudleys. This is such a twisted story. I know this story. Oh, God. Okay, so the Dudleys were a family who just kind of picked up and ran away with the circus. He was a handyman. They had a bunch of kids. A whole passel. Ten. That's a passel. And on July 1958... They took off in their 1951 Chevy and headed to Florida. Where they keep the crazy. And they took six kids with them. What happened to the other four? One had died previously. Okay. And he'd actually gone to jail for burying him in an unsanctioned place. Illegal disposal of a body is a crime. He was in jail for a year. And he had three adult kids. Okay. Thank God. Who previously had been taken away and put in foster homes. Okay. Thank God. Because Irene Dudley had been accused of negligence. So these are already, these two people are in the runnings for parents of the year. I mean, clearly. Right. They talked about living in their car, sleeping on the grass in warm weather, chasing carnivals, trying to find work, never having enough to eat. And so on February 6, 1961, a Virginia State Trooper stopped a 1940 sedan equipped with an oil heating stove. Thought it looked a little odd. Kind of checked it out. It sounds like the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, that's what I imagine. Like grandma's tied on top. Yeah. I noticed some scruffy kids in the back. And there was nothing to keep them on. Let them go. On February 9th, two interesting things happened. One was someone reported them at a gas station looking very suspicious so they just basically drove around stood around walked around looking suspicious like that's all there is but also that day a body of a female child was found along route one near lawrenceville virginia so that was in route from the sixth to the ninth correct like they would have passed that place on their route they kind of had an idea of who this child's body might belong to really they put it together that quick they really did that's crazy and they put a description out They broadcast it out. They were apprehended. So, Sam, let's do some math. How many children did they leave with? Six. When they were arrested, they had one. We are missing some children, sir. Quick, get the milk bottles. So that was their young girl, Christine. That was all that was left in the car with them. Okay, so Christine is one. And so they asked to see Christine. They were like, we're sorry. We did our best. There were just so many of them. The cops were like... Holy (laughs) shit. There are more of them. Started asking where they were. Kind of already knew that that body of that little girl belonged to them. Said, no, sir, we had to leave them south of here. That's where we worked carnivals all across the south. And he repeatedly told them that he did not sell the children. He gave them to some man in Florida. Okay, the reason he'd be saying that he didn't sell them is because that would be illegal. I'm guessing. I'm not sure why. I don't think this guy was exactly in his right mind. And so they did admit to letting their daughter, Carol Ann, who was eight, is the body that was found, die. And she was pronounced dead from malnutrition and negligence. She was also found to have a broken leg as well. They also admitted to bearing two other children who had died mysteriously over the last 24 years. And of course, they gave the four others away. Did they really give any kids away? No. So the first one died, Claude. He was almost four years old. His body was found near Lakeland, Florida, bound on canvas in a blanket. Norman and Charles, two of their other children, died close together, possibly while they were in Arizona? The story's a little unclear. Like I said, not exactly in their right mind. But we do know that they threw their bodies over a bridge into Lake Pontchartrain near New Orleans. That's where we got interested in the story. Right. Um, they had driven from maybe Arizona all the way to Louisiana with the dead bodies. In and the back still living children? Of the car. Yes. Oh my god, they're so fucked up. I'm sorry, they're just so fucked up. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to build some empathy here. And three year old Deborah Jane survived until May twenty first, nineteen sixty, when her small corpse was found wrapped in canvas 
wedged into a cardboard box and dumped on a rubbish heap outside of Jenkins, Kentucky. So they just like littered with their children. Yeah, so this is an example of someone that truly kind of belongs in the knot group. They were put themselves there, were forced there by society because they were abnormal. They were obviously not in their right mind. They could not take care of these children they were having. I guess they couldn't figure out how they were having all these children because they kept doing it. Well, contraception was illegal at this point anyway. I'm just saying. There are ways. There are ways. Oh, my God. So out of the 10 kids they had, they accidentally let four live. Yeah, but three were taken away. And then the one they just found before she died. How fucked up is that kid? You know, like, what is her life like? What do you, I mean, how do you ever move on from that? God, ugh, that one gives me heebie-jeebies. I don't like that story. So, you know, we've talked a lot about this kind of outsider groups. Like we said, you can self-identify as an outsider, but lots of people are put in that position as well. And that idea of being able to put someone in an outsider position can have really nasty consequences because the definition is really ambiguous the only commonality of this label is that they've been labeled so you can lump this group together but they're not all the same oh that sounds dangerous it sounds a little trumpy and by trumpy i mean racist well it could be racist it could be anything i feel like it's the machinations of racism that we're discussing like honestly well there's some of that is that is there yeah right there's also some of that just fear of the people that don't belong with you you know it could just be people from a different social class as well like we talked about crime as well associated with that and you know our fear of crime especially from this outsider group is way way higher than the risk we actually have so you could probably think of some modern day ideas of certain groups where the fear of a crime from this group far exceeds the actual risk of a crime from this no, group. No, I can't I mean, think of any. I can't, let no. your imagination go wild. I, I can't. I can't think no. of a single thing. You mean gypsies. It's gypsies. gypsies yeah, yes. that's the ones. Yes. Okay, well, now that we've we've got that out there. So what you're saying is that sometimes people will basically do kind of like a casting call for a bad guy, and they're going to choose the people who look like their idea of a bad guy more quickly. Right. This is the 20th century, 21st century boogeyman so we can identify others with the part of ourselves of which we disapprove that grows within us that hatred of the object of our identification i think it's interesting that you talk about the out group or the fear representing a part of ourselves that we are almost ashamed of or that we hate and it reminds me of this amazing quote from a native american elder because that's as specific as we get because we're white bastards written on a memorial in duluth and it says inside of me there are two dogs one of the dogs is mean and evil the other dog is good the mean dog fights the good dog all the time when asked which dog wins he reflected for a moment and replied the one i feed the most that's a great saying and you said that it's in duluth so, you know, something really interesting happened to Luth that really does relate to this kind of circus outsider group and this idea of putting people in the out group. So in 1920, the circus was in town in Duluth, Minnesota, and a young woman named Irene Tuscan, who was 19, and her beau, James Sullivan, who was 18, had gone into town to attend the circus and they wandered in back of the tent, and nobody really knows for sure what happened next. So after they walk behind the tent, the timeline goes fuzzy. But we do know that the next morning, the chief of the Duluth Police Department, John Murphy, got a call from James Sullivan's father, so the boyfriend's father, claiming that Irene had been raped by six black men who worked for the circus. So, I mean, did this happen? Well, there's not a lot of evidence to support that idea. Irene actually did consent to have a medical examination done, and there was no evidence of physical assault, which is peculiar given that she was supposedly violently raped and assaulted by six black men behind a circus tent who would have been physical laborers and much stronger than she was. And and somehow managed to not leave a bruise or mark. Right. And James Sullivan apparently just stood by as all of this was happening. Just let it happen. Yeah. So this is this is the story they come in with. 
So the Duluth police go out and they take her complaint seriously, which is good for them, which might not happen if this was reported today. So the police go out and they take the complaint seriously and they arrest six circus workers on charges of rape and bring them down to the county jailhouse in Duluth. With, with no evidence. Only testimony. Right. Well, I mean, it's 1920. It's not like they're going to have DNA evidence or whatever. And you know what? It's fine to arrest people if you think they've done something and they thought they'd done something. And, and follow the order of the law. Right. You bring them to jail. You charge them. You take them for a hearing and they're found either guilty or innocent by a jury of their peers. Right. So this is how the law is supposed to work, except that it didn't. Of course. So that night, a mob of between 1,000 and 10,000, which is really big. Mar- Were there that many people even in the town? Well, people came from out of town. Oh, man. About that many white people got together, and they got mad, and they decided that they needed to go defend this girl's honor, and so they stormed the jail. What did they do after they stormed the jail? Well, funny you should ask, they had a trial. Really? They had a mock trial. Really? Really, they did. And they found three of the men guilty. Only three? Only three. Why? I don't know. There's not a transcript. Unfortunately, they did not go so far as to have a mock stenographer. Damn. Damn. But the three men that they found guilty were named Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, and Isaac McGee. And they were roustabouts with the John Robinson Circus, which means that they were physical laborers who helped, like, assemble and disassemble the tent and set up props for all the acts and, you know, do just general work with the circus. So they got them in and they drug them down the street to a light post and they beat the shit out of all of them. And then they lynched them. And three white men were subsequently found guilty of rioting. And they got a slap on the wrist. (laughs) Yeah. No one was found guilty of murder. One of the other circus workers named Max Mason was actually charged with the rape of Irene Tuscan. And he served about four years in prison. And then he was granted parole on the condition that he would leave the state and never come back. And he happily left the state and never came back. Wow. So this really went down in history because it happened in the north. Right. Uh, It was very public. And very sort of shocking at the time. There were postcards distributed with the men's bodies on them, like hanging from a light post. There were lots of reports in newspapers. It was just the coverage was widespread. And people. This became like a real rallying cry. Yes, it did. Um, It drew attention to the lynching problem. It's sickening. There's actually an episode of Most Notorious with Eric Rivness, the podcast that we love, where he talks to an author who's written extensively and done a ton of research on the Duluth lynchings. Very good episode of that show. Very thorough interview. Eric always asks incredible questions. I highly recommend it. If you would like to know more about this, the tragedy. It's it's unfair. It's unjust. It's It's something a lot of people would like to sweep under the rug, but... To we the, shouldn't. And to lose credit, there's actually a gorgeous memorial that was erected within the last 10 years in honor of these three men who were murdered by a mob. And I think that that's an incredibly important monument because it's something we just don't talk about down here. No, I agree completely. I mean, this idea of just taking people just because they're New Yorker, just because they're not like you, you know, this had a race component, also had the drifter component as well. These people are not part of the community in so many ways. And they were able to do such atrocities, I mean, truly because of race. And But that is one way that we have an outgroup. Mm-hmm. In group is the race that we associate with. It's important to note that in really like anthropological research and sociological research that really having an in-group does not mean you have to hate the out-group. What makes people do that? Yeah, so your in-group identification is completely independent of negative attitudes towards an out-group. In-group bias and intergroup discrimination is motivated by preferential treatment of in-group members rather than direct hostility towards outgroups so really you can just push yourself up and push your people up without hating everyone else 
you don't have to hate those that are outside of you to have an in-group. That's something that is not related because we're always going to have in-groups and out-groups. Right. You have to associate with something, but it doesn't have to be something where it's like, these people are terrible because they're not in our in-group. We must hate them. It's just a way of preventing others from getting into your in-group. Yeah, which is not necessarily a good thing. No. I'd say that's just a story. Yeah. It's just a story. Still listening? Are you still there? So we have our new season of Audio Dime Museum coming up very shortly in the next week. Dun, dun, dun. And we have some really awesome news. What? Oh, you don't know? No. We're doing circus stories. Really? Audio Dime Museum is going to the circus. So here's a brief little preview of what you can expect if you go and subscribe to Audio Dime Museum Carnival. And I rode my trusted companion leads here. Come on. Now, I know it doesn't look like much. It's a little a little worse for wear. Rusted, bent and broken. Just a shadow of its former self, to say the least. But I remember it. I remember its glory days. It was a jewel. It glowed with colors too bright for the plains or for the forest. It was a camp of intrigue and magic and mystery. And you mark my words. This was the world's most fantastic, most amazing, most unbelievable carnival. Ladies and gentlemen, and children everywhere. Audio Dime Museum. With more laughs, thrills, and chills. Carnival.